All right, this is our uh, last time in 2 Timothy for the year. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to finish it up, 19. Uh, we'll start, we'll finish the, the rest of the chapter in, in, 20, in verse 22. So it's just a few quick verses, but, uh, and it's an obscure passage. It's an ending of a book. It's a final farewell address. And so before we read it, would you raise your hand if you need a Bible? Our ushers will give you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Take it, keep it, read it. It is about Jesus. We do believe all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching in any and every season. That's why even at the end of a letter where you're going to see some names that I may or may not say them correctly, likely not, but who knows. Uh, if I try to quickly and confidently, you'll, you'll, you'll believe me. Uh, can't even say that confidently. Um, so, but God, God, this is God's word. It is edifying. It will be edifying to us. It will be, it has been breathed out by God and it is profitable for us today. And so it is a privilege and honor to get right into it. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19 through 22. It'll be on the screen if you need to look. Uh, greet Presca and Aquila. These guys have, uh, this, is, this is a husband and wife. Priscilla and Aquila is another way they say their name later, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. And the household of Onesiphorus, and uh, ooh, Estrus remained in Corinth. Uh, he remained in Corinth while I left uh, Tophia, Femus, because uh, he was ill in Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubilus greet, sends greetings to you in Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers whole church. I, he, he probably got tired of writing their names out like I got tired of reading them just now. Because uh, I'm, some, those of you who don't know, I'm dyslexic. And so when I read words, names in scriptures, like I don't even know if I'm saying, I don't even know if I'm reading it right. I don't even know if I see it correctly. So just thank you for your grace towards me there. The Lord be with you in your, in your spirit and grace be to you. So that's it. That's the end of the book. Here's where we're at. You're like, what are you going to do with this? This is, there's some guys that I think, there's some girls' names I think, there's some people here. I think, what are, who are these people and what do they have to do with us today? Well, here's the reality. Number one, they made it in the Bible. Our names didn't. So they're at least a little bit more important. Uh, and their lives have, have a little bit more meaning as we're going to unpack it today. We're going to look in, in a lot of these folks, their, their journey with Paul through Acts, and see wh- who, who they are, why they have significance, and, and how this can be an encouragement to us. And so I want to set the scene a little bit. Paul's been writing to Timothy in the context of uh, false teaching. It's false teachers uh, that have risen up in the ranks of Timothy, this young church uh, leader in, in Ephesus. Uh, he's contending for the faith. There's people opposing him. There's opposition. There's false teaching. There's been church discipline. There's been uh, church leadership. There's been, uh, there's been issues on every front. He's been contending and fighting. And Paul wants him to continue the mission, to not give up, to finish well, just like the Apostle Paul is finishing well. He's right now sitting in a, a cell uh, about to breathe his last. He's about to be executed and murdered for being a Christian, a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, church-planting, you know, Christian. Uh, it's winter time. He's cold. He's he's he. Last week he asked for his cloak or his coat. Me, I was realizing if I needed something, I would probably need also a beanie because my cold head doesn't matter how much uh, I wear a coat and I'm still freezing without hair. And so uh, he just needs some practical needs to come to him to keep him warm for his last few days as it, before he meets Jesus face to face. And so he he's writing uh, to, to Timothy to. To give some greetings to some folks, some people, some people he's done ministry with. And I want to set the scene because in the middle of this great opposition, 
I've talked uh, at length to the, the Apostle Paul's, the opposition he's faced. He's been persecuted. He's been beaten with rods. He's been hit, thrown, stones have been thrown at him. He's been kicked out of synagogues. He's been left uh, for dead. He's been, he's been out at sea, shipwrecked, abandoned. Some days he had food. Some days he didn't. It's been a wild life for him. And one thing is certain that he never gave up. He never let off the gas. He continued to love Jesus and faithfully preach Jesus and, and complete the mission, so much so that he says he's finished the race and he has kept the faith. And so that's, that's the Apostle Paul. And in the middle of our study through uh, 2 Timothy, it, it, it could, could have felt, uh, but it could have felt like, man, it just feels intense. Like church planting in Paul's day was intense, because it was. Church planting our day is intense, because it is. And some of us have felt some of that uh, uh, you know, intense, intensifying nature of ministry in the context and the seasons that we've been living in, in the present. And so some of you, we've been through this book, and you're like, man, this is timely, but I'm exhausted. It's timely, but I'm just, I just want to give up. I mean, it's timely, but I just don't know how they kept going. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at the names of these people. The, 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 the folks in verse 19, or 19 and 20, these guys, they're mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. So we're going to look at some of those. But then the guys in you know, 21 through the, the rest of the book, uh, uh, the, in verse 21, they, these guys, this is the only time their names are mentioned. So all we know is they were faithful brothers and sisters who loved the Lord Jesus to the end. And, and, and the Apostle Paul to the end. He wants to, Timothy to greet the church members. He wants to say, hey, Paul misses you, he loves you, he's thankful for you, keep it going. And so what I want to see, the reason I want to look at these other folks, there's four different groups of people I want to look at uh, that are in verses 19 and 20. The reason I want to look at them is because this is what's happening. These are the real people, their real lives being really changed in the middle of that opposition, middle of that hardship, middle of the days in which Paul is left alone, middle of the, the, the moments where Paul is like, hey, no one came to me. I'm sitting in prison and no one is coming to me. I'm isolated. I'm alone. I'm abandoned. What was God doing? What was God doing? Far too often we feel isolated, alone, perhaps abandoned, hard-pressed on every side. And we're just like, is God doing anything? Is God doing anything in my life? Is God doing anything in other people's lives? What's going on? The answer is always yes, but oftentimes we cannot see. So we're going to look at four different groups of people and, and who they were and how they, were, they played a part in Paul's ministry and Paul's life and why he might be you know, wanting to greet them as he ends his life. And so this ministry couple, Prisca and Aquila or Priscilla and Aquila, these two folks, uh, they are, uh, this is a ministry couple. So the first thing I want us to see is in the middle of Paul's ministry, in the middle of all this, married couples meet Jesus. They're meeting Jesus, and they're joining him on mission. They're joining him on mission. Some folks, there'll be, there's plenty of married folks in the, in the New Testament that get saved. Some of them come out of Judaism. Some of them are Gentiles. This, this couple, they've met Jesus, and they're in ministry together. Even in, in some parts of Acts, they, they host churches. They host churches meetings. Church, house churches are in their house. They just use their home to love and serve people they're on ministry together and so I want us to see this this is in Acts 18 verse 2 this is when Paul meets them and Paul found a Jew named Aquila that's uh the dude and a and a native of, of, of Pontus and recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome 
We're not going to talk too much about the context there. I just want you to see that they're meeting, Paul's meeting these, this ministry couple for the first time. They're coming uh, and he's met them. And what, what's going to happen, I'm going to share with you, when this couple becomes co-laborers or co-workers with the Apostle Paul to help him advance much of the gospel and, his, and many of the works that he does in Acts is, is, can, can be contributed to the, the love, the service, and care of this ministry couple. This couple. And so what I want to see first is that, that marriage is their first ministry. And so if you, if you will go with me for a moment, because uh, I'm, I'm going to make a point. Marriage is their first ministry. It's the, the, the ministry is first to their marriage. And, and so out of the marriage overflows other ministry. First, a husband to his wife, and his wife to her husband, and the overflow then to their children. And after that, then it goes outside the home and extends outside the home. This is exactly how uh, uh, God describes the qualification of an elder, a pastor in a church. They must first be able to uh, oversee their house well. If they can't do that, their wife, their kids, they can't love, serve, protect, lead, guide, and lead their family like their first church well, their first ministry well, then they're not qualified or fit to being a pastor in, in a church. Ministry starts in the home. Ministry starts in the home and it overflows out of the home into the spheres and domains which God has called you to. So first, it, it flows into your relationship with your, your, your spouse, your kids if you have them in the home, and then beyond that to, to where you live, where you work, where you play. If you're not married, you don't have kids, it still starts in the home. You, individually, you with Jesus. And then if you have roommates next door, you, your Jesus, your roommates. That's your next ministry. They're not Christians, all right, well, there's your mission field. You don't have to go very far. Just if you keep both doors open, you can have a whole gospel conversation and never, you know, never interact with them other than whatever distance you feel safe with. Like that's, it's okay. that's your first ministry. It's your home. It starts in your home. And so some of you have young kids, young kids. And so you'll hear the, the, the zeal of the Apostle Paul who did not have biological children. Timothy was a child uh, in the faith. And so you'll, you'll see the zeal of the Apostle Paul and you'll feel like, man, I'm just not making disciples. Because my toddler is crying all night and they're really hindering me from uh, this mission that Jesus called me to. You know, I just don't feel like I'm fulfilling the great call. I need you to know, one, if you say that to yourself, I'm going to give you the, the freedom to just know that you're going to repent of that today. That's what we're repenting. You're repenting of that today because that is your ministry. That's your child. They got to live long enough to hear the gospel. Therefore, you got a lot of work to do to keep them alive. The crying, the comfort, the tears, the, the feedings, the, the sleepless nights. You are preparing the way so that one day that they can meet Jesus, be transformed. This is legitimately gospel work, parenting. So many of you have young kids. It's your first child and you have, or you have a couple young children and you're a, a lot. We're, have, we're, we're having a child a month, I think, in 2022. We're already set, the schedule set for the next year. We're just keeping, I don't know who's got March yet, but I think y'all might have time. Like this is, this is where we're headed into the new year. Every year it's just like another kid, another kid, another kid per month. And so we have a lot of families with a lot of young kids, and a lot of times the enemy will discourage you and say, you know what, you're not making disciples. You know what, you, are, you, you, you aren't doing anything for Jesus. You are. You are. I, you, you cannot miss this reality that, that these children in your home will one day be grown adults. And the time you invest with them begins all the way from the time you're, they're, they're, they're nursing or you know, bottle feeding, whenever they're, they're young, to the time they're six, seven, eight, nine, and, or 
all the way till they're teenagers and out of the house. This is the, 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 cult, the, the garden that must be cultivated so that it may bear fruit later. Don't miss that. So some of you, that's you. You have limited capacity. You, you feel exhausted. You can't sleep because you got children. Your first and foremost priority is to Jesus individually. Then if you're husband to your wife, a wife to your husband, that, that's your next ministry. Don't forsake that relationship for your kids. And then after that, don't forsake your kids for anything else. Some of you may need, need to maybe focus your attention on, uh, on your priorities of your, your first ministry. Husbands to your wives, wives to your husbands, to your children, to your home. And out of the overflow of that will become more ministry opportunities. Here's how. Eventually these kids get friends. If you let them out of the house, uh, they'll get friends. They tend to make friends better than adults. Kids like people and they want friends. They don't even know introvert and extrovert at that age. They just like, they'll figure out how to make friends. Just take some cues from them. They, they just let them go have friends. And then all of a sudden those friends, guess what? They have parents. Sometimes those parents don't know Jesus. Or sometimes they do and they're not very mature in the faith and you need to come alongside and help them and, and mature them. What's, what we're going to see, that's what Priscilla and Aquila do to Barnabas later. It's this ministry, if you're faithful to, to know, love Jesus personally, intimately, privately, uh, uh, you know, every day meet with Jesus, have a vibrant relationship with Jesus, you individually, that will overflow into your relationship with your spouse, then it will overflow to your kids, and I promise you, ministry opportunities will continue to open up. But oftentimes, we'll neglect the home for what's out in the field in order, because we think that, that we read a book, we see, we see the zeal of the New Testament, so we get zealous and we go out there and do that and we miss out on on the ministry God wants us to do in the home and then later we're like look at all these disciples we made and our kids don't love Jesus they don't follow Jesus it's not always how it happens I'm just saying there's a there's a there's a huge wake of young children who are now you know teenagers and and in young 20s that are leaving the faith leaving the church I just, I just don't want us to miss that our young families you get so zealous about ministry outside the walls of your home that you miss the ministry that's inside your walls. Because sometimes that ministry just looks like holding a child who's crying, praying over them, learning that you're really selfish, repenting of your own sin, becoming more like Jesus. He loved children. He, would, he had patience. We don't. God sometimes wants to teach you patience through childbearing and so that you can have patience later. God wants to work on you. Don't forget that ministry starts in the home. And then some of you, are, you have older kids. Your, your capacity is extending. Some of your empty nesters are about to be empty nesters. You have more capacity than ever. You're more, more like Priscilla and Aquila where they have ministry capacity. So you can host people in your home. You're not living in a, in a one-bedroom apartment anymore. You actually have a home, which by the grace of God, you're able to use it to steward, to host people. And you're able to do ministry in your home like they're able to do. It, it, the seasons of life change, but when you're faithful with little, God gives you, gives you more, and some of you are at that, that level where you have the more. And you're able to steward and use the stuff that God has given you to, to love, serve, and care for his people and the church and, and do the work of discipleship, because that's exactly what they do. Acts 18, verse 26, this is what happens. Priscilla and Aquila, they heard him. This is Barnabas. He was preaching. Just imagine this. You know, dude's preaching, and so what they do after the sermon, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This was Barnabas preaching. They're like, oh, new guy. We got some stuff we got to tell him. 
It was likely that he, he had not understood baptism correctly. It's, there's some few things in Acts 18 that, that Barnabas just didn't know. We do know that he wasn't speaking heresy, but there's just some things he didn't know. He needed to be discipled. So what they do, they see a young preacher, they see him in his ministry, they go, how can we bless him, how can we help him, how can we teach him? How can we come alongside him? Not to, not to thwart his ministry and his calling, but to help cultivate it, bless it, and then send him off and, and so he can do more ministry. How can we bless him and, and do this? How can we do this? And so Barnabas is, is this young preacher. He's, he's really zealous. He's, he's gifted. And he's, he's, he needs some time and energy and investment. And guess what Priscilla and Aquila do? They do that. This ministry couple see this young preacher. They go invest in him. Sometimes that looks like, in our day, it could look like being resourcing him. Hey, can we pay? I've, I've had people offer, hey, can we pay for a, uh, some, some education for you, Al? Can you pay for some books? Can we pay? I, now I'm thinking, were they reading this verse going, huh, this guy needs to know God more accurately. But I don't know. I take it. It's good. We all must grow in our faith. We, we never cease to be disciples of Jesus. And so, Priscilla and Aquila seeing the Great Commission and their need to not just share their faith, but to help those who have come to faith cultivate that so that they grow in obedience to Jesus like the Great Commission says, see this young preacher and they want to invest in him. They want to invest in him. So this could look like resourcing him or investing time into a young, a young uh, preacher, a young, uh, just a young guy, a young girl, someone in ministry, someone who is just zealous for Jesus. And oftentimes that's who you should pick first. If you see someone just zealous, they're just doing it. They're not asking for when is the group on evangelism? When do I share my faith again? They're just doing it. They're just reckless abandoning doing it. Those are the people you should rally around and help cultivate. Those are the people. They're already doing it. Let's resource you. Let's help you. Let's bless you. Invite you into our house with our young college kid. Let us wash your clothes. Actually, we'll give you the, 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 the laundry detergent. You can wash your own clothes, but we'll give you that opportunity to wash your clothes. I needed that as a young college guy because I just snuck all my laundry into the, the track laundry bin so that someone else could do it because I didn't know how to. I'm, I'm in marriage and finally learning. You know, that's where I'm at. Discipleships. I needed some practical skills. Maybe it's education. Maybe it's practical skills. Maybe it's teaching a young person how to have a budget, a new, a fam, a new couple. How do they process through and walk through this new life of having a new baby? It's hard. It's difficult. We, the church of Jesus should be, we should be full of people like Priscilla and Aquila, couples who are married and couples who want to do ministry and, and want to serve other people. So you're looking for ways to do that. That's a couple that, that, that it has such a, they, they help the Apostle Paul in great, mighty ways and they have eternal impact because of some of the practical things, some of the, the, the resourcing, some of the help, some of the using their resources to bless Paul and his ministry. So oftentimes, we are looking for someone to organize for us before we start making disciples. Where's the discipleship ministry? Where's the, the, this group? How, I, I, whenever the church gets their business straight, then we'll, we'll, then we'll be about discipleship. Because, you know, I read my Bible and I'm really passionate about it, but until the church organizes the, the group for that, can't do it. They didn't do that. Priscilla and Aquila just did it. They became a blessing to Paul, his ministry, Barnabas, and the church. So the big idea is if you're married, you're on a mission. You have a ministry together. This is exactly the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were created, God gave them a mission and gave them a call in their life. And that, guess what? As soon as Adam and Eve were married and had a call in their life, what happened? Satan showed up. Opposition shows up. 
So I need you to see that, that if you're like in the middle of wherever you're at and you just feel the pressure on every side and you, or you start to say, hey, I want to invest in some young people or I want to invest in, in some folks in our church and I want, to, I want to serve them, bless them, equip them, I want to disciple them. All of a sudden, guess what? The enemy will show up because he hates it. Like, man, I'm too tired, just pouring out too much energy. Like, life was so much better when I just came to Sunday, sat in the seats and like left and went home and all did nothing. I promise you, it didn't get better when you did that. Consumers just get fat and lazy and then die early. That's what they do. Christians are not consumers. We're producers. We get fed and we serve. And so if you're a single dude, I need you to see, if you're single, man, you need a mission. If you want to one day have a wife to help you join your mission, you got to get on mission. Can't wait for her to come and then like, oh, now that my wife's here, let's, let me do some ministry. Let me serve some people. Adam had a ministry and a call in his life before in a mission before he ever met Eve, before she was ever created. That's why she was created. Because Adam needed to help her fit for him. He had a mission. He was doing it. His wife came alongside and helped. So if you're a single dude, get on mission. Jesus has already given it to you. Go ahead and do it. If you're a single woman, come alongside what God is doing. Especially if you hope to be married one day. If you want to be a helper, just like God has intended you to be, uh, with your husband on mission, then find a, find a church, find a, a ministry in the church, find something in the church to get around and help and cultivate and push the mission forward. Some of you will say, "Man, that sounds offensive. Like a helper? That's all I am? Ah, you're so narrow-minded. You're so degrading to women." Sorry. Guess who else is called the helper? God, the Holy Spirit. If that's not good enough for you, then I don't know. Take it up with him. He's the one who empowered Jesus for his ministry. Like, he, like the ministry, the book of the Bible, the book, no book of the Bible would ever have been written without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So no mission, Adam's mission could not have been fulfilled without the ministry of Eve. Guess what their mission was? Be fruitful and multiply. Guess what Adam couldn't do? Bear children. Just saying, he literally could not do his task without Eve. We cannot do our task, men, without wives coming alongside us and helping us. The church cannot do its ministry without those coming alongside, helping and serving the church. This is exactly what Priscilla and Aquila are doing. Don't see that, that helping in ministry is somehow less than job or position. We see that exactly with the next guy, Anesiphorus, the unashamed Christian. He says, it says this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses six through, uh, or 16 and 18. May the Lord grant mercy to the household, so the whole household of Onesiphorus. So again, a ministry family. This dude, he gets named and he has a whole household, but Paul is saying what enabled him to do what we're about to read was his household. May they be blessed, for he often refreshed me. It's probably his wife was, was cooking some food, gave it, to, gave it, I don't know what it looked like, maybe that's what happened. Uh, he was not ashamed, though, of Paul's chains, verse 17, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. He didn't have, the, there was no GPS, there was no, where's the nearest prison to find, you know, the apostle. He figured it out, found the apostle Paul, went to him, and so Paul's like, may the Lord grant mercy on him, and from, um, on that day, so he's like, man, he rendered a lot of service to me, bless this man. This man, Onesiphorus, is unashamed. He's unashamed of Paul. He's unashamed of Jesus. He's unashamed of the message of the gospel that put the apostle Paul in prison. He's unashamed. 
And so Paul's out there preaching. He's out there saying things that are getting him into trouble. He's, he's, he's contending for the gospel. He's advancing churches. The, the government doesn't like him. The city council doesn't like him. No one likes him. And there's this guy, Onesiphorus, and his family was like, man, that's our guy. Apostle Paul, he's, that's our guy. He's a faithful Bible teacher, and we love him so much. Oh, he's in prison? we got to find him. we gotta, we got to search out, find him, and refresh him in encouragement. See, the church of Jesus needs every church, local church, but the global church needs more of these as well. But the, the local church needs guys like and gals like Onesiphorus, who are just encouragers. They, 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 they see the boldness of the Apostle Paul's ministry, and they're like, Yes, I gotta come alongside that. I gotta cultivate that. I gotta bless that. I gotta help him. I gotta encourage him. Why would he need to be refreshed? Because he's exhausted, wrung out, tired. See, in order to do this, to be the type of servant, it says the service he rendered, that's the same word we get deacon. In order to serve the, the church like Onesiphorus did, here's what happened. He 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 didn't he couldn't be jealous of the apostle Paul's call. I think that's really important for us in our day. Many people just get, they want to do ministry, they want to serve the church, but they only want to do certain types of ministry. I only want to do this one ministry. And I don't want to really serve the church in other ways because it may hinder my, 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 my calling. Or I'm jealous of that guy or that girl or that position, that, that, that you know, office, and I'm, because I'm jealous there, I just don't serve. But when I'm in that position, I hope that they serve me. See, he's not, a, he's not jealous or insecure. He's unashamed. He's unashamed of the gospel. He's unashamed of, uh, of the Apostle Paul. He sees that God has called the Apostle Paul to a certain ministry, and that dude needs some encouragement. So he's coming there to encourage him. He's coming there to encourage him. And he, he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the implications of the gospel either. Why is Paul in prison? Because people don't like what he is saying. Like, if he were to be alive in our day with Twitter, social media, and all that, like, he would be so canceled. Like, it would be impossible probably for him to, like, buy groceries. I'm waiting for the day, and I think it's coming sooner than I think because I've seen it happen in small pieces where there's coffee shops where I used to have dear friends, and I go in, and I'm, I, I think there's going to be a day where it's just like, man, we don't want you here. We don't want you here. We've heard the stuff you say. And so what happened is many, many people then were therefore ashamed of Paul because they're like, oh, if I, go to, if I go to that coffee shop and they see that I am you go to this church or I'm not wearing that shirt anymore, man, I'm, not, I'm taking... No more pictures at church letting people know I go there because people might think I'm like him, like a real Bible believer. Imagine that. If you are one, don't be ashamed of it like Anessa Force. He doesn't care if he gets associated with the Apostle Paul. I don't care if you label me like Paul. I love that Jesus. I love that Lord. That's, yes. And so he's a great encourager and a helper. But in order to do that, you've got to stop being ashamed of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. See, it's one thing to believe that Jesus died in your place for your sins. And rose victoriously from the dead. Conquering sin, Satan, death, and the grave. You believe that, that's how you become a Christian. Through faith. So if you don't believe that, believe that. I plead with you to believe that. But there's implications on that. If you believe that Jesus died in your place for your sins, that means he is your Lord and he is your Savior means that he is your God and he is your king. Meaning that what he says 
is right. And what you think, if it's contrary to his word, are wrong. That's the bad news of the gospel. We're wrong. The good news is God saves wrong people all the time. He actually only saves wicked, wrong people. It's the only people who are available for salvation. And so oftentimes we can get Jesus, where I'm not ashamed of Jesus, but then I, I'm, so I'm ashamed of, of Christ, Christian ideology. That's what we'll start saying. Or conservative Christian ideology. You throw, a, you throw that on there, it's like this term that means it doesn't count. It's not true. If it's in the Bible, I don't care what you call it. If you call it conservative, liberal, whatever. If it's in the Bible, it's Bible theology. Don't masquerade behind some stupid term just to get yourself out of doing it. So when it comes to marriage, we read the Bible. What does God say about marriage? Non-Christian, we get saved. We're not Christians. We don't know about marriage. We know, all we know is God, and he's God. So tell me about marriage. Well, it just so happens that God says that he created marriage. Wouldn't you want to know what the creator said about marriage, the guy who invented it? Sits between one man and one woman forever. What about two dudes? Nope. One man, one woman forever. That sounds very narrow-minded, very bigoted. I'm not writing the news. I'm not telling you. I'm just telling you what it says. Well, God, I have an issue with you. Okay. What's the issue? I think you're narrow-minded and bigoted. Okay. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? That's what he tells Job. He actually tells him to gird his loins like 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 a man, like they're going to go outside and God's going to take care of him. He said, where were you? What about sex? We believe in that. We do. But in the context of marriage. Gender. All right, we're in the, we're in the world today where people are getting saved, and now they're being told one thing in the culture. What do, what do we do about gender? I have questions about gender. Well, we go to God's word. And if, if, our, if, our, if God's definition of gender, which is binary, is different than our definition, then we're wrong. We're wrong. So we got to admit, I'm wrong. See, I don't know why Christians get so bent out of shape of being, being wrong. That's the, we were wrong originally. That's how we got, became Christians. We admit it. I'm wrong. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I'm so wrong. I'm so wrong. Will you save me, God? He said, yes, amen, I will. Put your faith in my son who hung on the cross in your place for your sins. And he's not dead. He's risen victoriously. Yes, I agree. I believe. My sin, my Savior, I'm saved. What did I need saving from? My sin and the way I think, the way I believe, the way I walk, the way I, my whole life needs transformation. So go back to God's word. What does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about gender? What does the Bible say about sexuality? What does the Bible say about life? See, we're pro all those things. We're pro-life, womb to tomb. We're pro-gender, male and female. We're pro-sex, context of marriage. We're pro-marriage, one man, one woman forever. We're pro. The Bible's so pro. All of it. All of it. And so our world, we have young Christians, they get saved, and then they, 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 they come out of an ideology or belief that is not Christian, which is totally normal because they weren't Christians. And then they're like, wait a minute. This sounds like conservative Christian ideology. I can't believe that. Conservatives are evil. Like they wear red hats, and it's weird. Depends what the hat says. I don't know. And so the world around us, and the same is happening in Timothy's day, they, they, there's this opposition to Jesus and his church. 
So we'll throw, we'll throw labels onto things that are biblical so that the new Christian can go, no, 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 no. I can't believe that. See, don't you notice all the big cultural issues that, that the attacks today are on the family? Marriage, sexuality, gender, life in the womb. It's in the family. That's exactly how it started. The demonic attack from, from Satan to Adam and Eve started when they got married. They got a call in their life to be fruitful and multiply. He wanted to shut it down. He wanted to convince them that marriage wasn't exactly like God had intended. That, you know, you didn't need to obey God with your whole life. Just eat of this fruit that looks good, tastes good, feels good, and just enjoy some pleasure and rebel against God because that's normal. And then, hey, if you don't like your, your brother, just kill him. That's what Cain did to Abel. We just do it sooner now. Do you see this? We're not reinventing things. We're just repeating the counterfeits that Satan began in the garden with Adam and Eve into the present. And so we get saved. You get saved out of, that, out of an environment that wasn't a Christian, and that's totally awesome and okay, but we go to God's word. And so so many Christians are so ashamed of the implications of God's word that they, they just, they're they not like an Esophorus, and they're not going to go refresh the bold Bible-preaching Apostle Paul. So see, our world is the same as their world. And Satan counterfeits and distorts everything that God created and said was good. And what does he do? We're being told by the, the demonic counterfeit that what is good and flourishing for us in humanity is actually the very thing that God forbids and is contradictory to our nature and creative order. Rebelling against God, the false teaching of our day, does not bring human flourishing. If you're tempted to believe it does, just look back on 2,000 years of human history. It ain't getting better. The only time that we see moments of, of things being revived and getting better is when the gospel invades a community, invades a city, and begins to transform it. And that the counterfeits get laid aside and that the created good what God created for good is, is embraced and loved and cherished and, and enjoyed as God intended. And the people of God return to the word of God and they, they submit to the God of the word and their lives become blessed in a way that they've never been and flourishing and, and transformation impacts a city, a nation. So we must be people who are not just unashamed of the gospel that we would share it, but unashamed of it that we wouldn't be ashamed of God's messengers. And so, some of you, in, in, when you're hearing, you just not to be unashamed, you think that means you're not supposed to be fearful. Like, fear is bad. You're right. It is. It's, it, anything apart from faith is sin and fear. Perfect love casts out fear. But I need you to understand, if you're going to have courage, courage doesn't exist without fear. See, the, the word courage implies that you're f- afraid and there's fear. Uh, R.C. Sproul said it once about Martin Luther that, that Luther was terrified in some sense. He was scared of, of death, the world, and the flesh, and the devil. He was afraid. But through the power of the gospel, through, the, through continually meeting with Jesus in his word and being transformed, he, he just could not do anything other than stand on the freedom of of God's word and the gospel that he just boldly would continue to, to step up and stand firm. And so, yes, there's a, there's a measure of fear. 
Yes, there's a measure of, of anxiety. If I'm going to preach the gospel, if you're going to preach the gospel, yeah, they might say nasty things about you. Yeah, you might lose friends. Yeah, you might be alone in prison like the Apostle Paul. Yeah, Onesiphorus might not show up and there may never be one. Yes, that might be true. But Luther, like Luther, we must love God's word and our Savior Jesus more than life itself. This was the, the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. This is what Paul wants Timothy to feel. This is what all the apostles through the New Testament that died for their faith, eventually, by, empowered by the Holy Spirit, experienced. They, did, they had fear, but they overcame fear by the power of the gospel. And the implica- So when it came to the implications of the gospel, they understood that this may cause them some anxiety. It may cause them relationships. It may cause them imprisonment. But Jesus was enough, so they did. They stood up and did it. See, the implications of the gospel in our world today, you have two different categories. You can be, that the world around us preaches a gospel of tolerance. Gospel of tolerance. Just tolerate. Just how is someone, just tolerate the person where they're at, their sin, their rebellion, their folly, their shortcomings. Just, just tolerate into the sense at which we affirm. Tolerate, tolerance and affirmation are, are equal in our world today. Historically, that's not true. That's literally not what the words mean. But in our world today, when we say tolerance, we, we say affirmation. Are you a tolerant church? It means do you affirm people in their sin? That's what it means. That's the world. That's the counterfeit, demonic counterfeit of the world. To a, a tolerance, to affirm people in the bondage of their sin so they can stay there forever and experience torment apart from the living God in hell where Jesus' wrath will be poured out on them forever. Sounds loving, right? Love wins, hashtag. That's what the world tells us. You have to be a fool to think that that's love. They changed the definition of love, and we're like, oh no, we're not loving. No, we are, they're not. The gospel of repentance, the one that Jesus preached when the apostle preached, the one that Onesiphorus is not ashamed of, is one that says, hey, you are bound in your sin. You are trapped. You are enslaved. But I know a guy. It's, his name's Jesus. He's the God who sets people free from their sin. Not just once, forever. You're bound and enslaved to your passions and to your worship of yourself or some other false God. But there's a God, the one true God, who sees you in your sin and says, I want you to be in my family. You're like an orphan alone under a bridge in the freezing cold. And, the, and God the Father says, I want to adopt you into my kingdom. In order to get you into the kingdom, I'm going to pay for you with my son's life. Now that's love. That's love. God the Father gives his only son to pay the penalty for sinners. In love, Jesus goes to the cross. Not so that you can stay in your sin and go to the hell apart from God. So that you can be rescued, set free, and be with Jesus in his kingdom now and forevermore until the day of Christ's return. And then, then enjoy the new heavens and new earth. That's what, he, that's what he did. That's love. You see the difference? You see one is a counterfeit that claims to be love, it's just tolerance, diversity, don't call people sinners, don't call them to repentance, therefore keep them enslaved and in bondage. Well, the gospel comes in and it does confront us and it does confront our sin, it does make us uncomfortable, it does say we're wrong, but it says everyone is wrong. 
Christian, if you share a gospel where they're wrong and you never were wrong, you missed the gospel. You were wrong too. And then Jesus saved you. And you're just coming to tell them, hey, I was where you were at. Here's the news I believed. Here's how I've been set free. Join me. Take off the chains. Get up. Let's go. This is the gospel. And it's one of repentance. It's the true gospel. Don't be ashamed of it. And if you herald that gospel, guess what happens? Non-Christians get saved. Erastus, elected official. Politicians meet Jesus. Some of you, that's your worst nightmare. Paul sent into, into, <laughs> he's sent into Macedonia two of his helpers. Timothy, the book that we're studying, and Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. And in Romans 16, we see that this Erastus was a city treasurer. Uh, and, and so that's, this is this guy. It's an elected official. It, it's, it, this, there's an inscription in Corinth that, that is still there uh, that said Erastus, in return for his adelship, laid this pavement at his own expense. What this is is like an adel, a man. This is an elected official that after uh, he, he, he had done a mission, he was overseeing some projects, and he, he then invested back in the city. So often the, uh, when the campaign pledges by elite uh, officials of the day would be uh, marked through something like uh, this, this limestone inscription or this insignia of this, this man. So it's, it's, it's this man, Erastus, is likely this elected official who has prominence in a city, in a de- demonic city of Corinth, which we're about to study in the new year. And he is uh, a man who's also a, a church member and a friend of the Apostle Paul. See, Jesus saves all people, even politicians and elected officials. It's amazing. I know, I know it's hard to believe that maybe someone in office can meet Jesus. Guess what? If someone meets Jesus in office, all the sins of their past still happened. The dirt is still there. You just hope that they confess those things, repent where needed, become public where necessary. But guess what? Guess what's not going to happen in our world today? That's never going to get out. It's never going to be public news. So who cares? Stop trying to figure out how to be publicly cool and Christian and just help people meet Jesus. So this dude becomes a Christian. An elected official. Just imagine how awesome it would be if certain city council members got saved in San Antonio. Actually, all of them. But how awesome that would be. The city would start changing because elected officials met Jesus. They may only get their term that they're in and then they'll be out. Or this, we also see that maybe even Christians should not just pray for elected officials to be saved, but also, hey, maybe Christians should join the game. You're like, no, politics are evil. Only if you're evil with politics. That's the only thing. If you're a Christian, a God-fearing man or woman, and you participate in the, in the, in the city and the council or the state at whatever level, and you don't compromise, that's the big deal. But that's the big deal for you at your job right now. Stop worrying about uh, not, uh, elected officials compromising their faith and start more, more worrying about you compromising your faith at your job. More Christians compromise their faith every single day at their job. And they want to complain about elected officials. I'm not saying don't hold people accountable. I'm saying hold Christians accountable yourself to the same standard as well. And then that, what does that mean? We must repent. It doesn't mean just don't call anyone out on their stuff. It means you repent. You herald the truth. But look, man, this guy gets saved. Selected official gets saved. And then this also tells us that elected officials, 
I know we don't have anyone in here, but they should be involved in the local church. Guess what happens? Some politician, oh, I can't go to church because if I go to church, you know, they'll just think that I'm campaigning. Cool, dude. That's a lie. You don't love Jesus. Like, that's, that's why I, want to t- I would tell any politician that to their face. Anyone. Like, when did your quote-unquote campaign surpass the campaign of our Lord Jesus Christ? Never. Never. You were only elected because the God of the universe allowed you to breathe. Romans 13 says that elected officials are the deacons or servants of the Most High God. Who do you think you are, elected official? Oh, I'm so important that I only come to churches so that I can be interviewed so during you know, an election year so people can, you know, we can swing the vote. What the heck? I once said something else. And then there's the other side, Christians who just hate politicians, and they're the biggest nightmare is that a politician would meet Jesus. Oh my gosh, what if we become a Christian nation? Oh my gosh, what if God saves everyone? Oh my gosh, I guess I should stop praying because that's what I've been praying for. Dude, it's happening. It happened. Just get excited about this. Dude, an elected official met Jesus in Corinth where they were like cross-dressing, getting drunk at communion type of church. And Paul writes a letter telling them to stop. That's the church. Radical transformation. And so God saves. See, I want you to see God saves individuals, but he puts them in churches to be what? Discipled. So that they can get around some Priscilla and Aquilas and they can be encouraged, equipped, and grow as disciples. What does the Great Commission say? Not just make converts, to teach them to what? Observe or obey all that Christ commanded. So uh, an elected official gets saved. Now they're joining a church. They're going to submit to Jesus, his word, will, and ways. So when it comes to issues like marriage, sex, gender, uh, uh, human life, abortion, they're going to now change their opinion to the word of God no matter what their political party is if they're not they're not obeying the great commission they're not obeying all that Christ has commanded and it's the job of the church to to hold them to that standard if they profess faith and they they don't articulate uh, or they don't live out their faith then they may be liable for scrutiny and church discipline imagine that an elected official says, I'm really a servant of the Most High God, like God said, and so I need to submit to the church of Jesus and then submit to the elders in the church and then uh, and submit to God's word and then make decisions for the city based off of God's word. All of a sudden, blessing, harmony, the thing that we're trying to get after, flourishing, begins to happen. And there's going to be a great opposition to that happening in our country today. But it need, we need the type of Christians who are unashamed of non-Christians, elected officials getting saved, and then Christians who are now elected officials leading according to God's word, will, and ways. And therefore be unashamed like Vanessa Force. Which leads us to the last one. The Gentile convert. Trophimus got it right. Trophimus. Radical non-Christians are getting saved. 2 Timothy 4.20, I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus, 
Acts 21, 29 through 30, we get, we get a little bit about him. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian, non-Christian dude, but he gets saved, so he, he's a Gentile convert, with him, with the apostle Paul in the city. And they supposed Paul had brought him into the temple and therefore defiled the temple. Paul had not brought him into the temple, but they made an assumption, which was wrong. Well, guess what it did? Then all the city got stirred up, and, they, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple at once, and the gates were shut. So now a riot's about to happen. Paul gets imprisoned because he's hanging around the non-Christians who are meeting Jesus. What is going on? Sometimes your ministry will tick off religious people because you're hanging around people that don't look like church people. They get saved, and then you're like, no, that guy can't go to church. That girl can't go to church. I saw their Facebook posts. Oh, man, they don't go delete their history of their hard drive of all the protests they went to. We 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 can't affirm their Christianity. Who cares? Who are they today? Have they repented of their sins? Do they know, love, and trust Jesus? I've said this before. I believe there is coming a day, and our, if you live long enough on this this world, there's coming a day where men and women, men who were who were born male, who uh, have gone undergone uh, gender reassignment surgery, and now are, are are physically trying to become women, and then they get saved and meet Jesus, and they come back to church, and they're like, "I don't look like I am, but I'm a dude, and I love Jesus, and I want to start acting like one." I saw a verse that says, "Act like a man." Help me do that, and you're be like, "He doesn't look like one." Who cares? This dude probably didn't look like a Christian either. Trophimus, who knows what he looked like, but he was in, Ephes- in Ephesus, wilding out church as well. This is the, the same place that Timothy's pastoring. What happens if the folks you're praying to get saved get saved? This is just what I want to ask Christians all around the world. world. What if all the, 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 the Gen Zs who are doing the TikTok videos that you're watching, you're going, man, I hope they get saved. And what if they do get saved? What happens? They show up to church. They look not like you. The religious people get really upset about it. They will. I want you to see that God is in the business of saving people, even radically lost non-Christian people like this dude, Tophimus. We should, therefore, be praying that God would do it, but not just praying, expecting God to save people. And then these people get introduced to Jesus who are radically lost. They come to faith in Jesus. And you have this great confidence that it can happen. Why? Because you're not ashamed like Vanessa Forrest. And you want to do ministry like Priscilla and Aquila. And you don't care which elected official gets saved. You just want them all to get saved. And you're going to introduce them to Jesus. You're going to be praying for it and expecting it. And then you're going to be an evangelist to reach radically non-Christian people. And they're getting saved. And you're just, it's just happening. See, all of this is happening in the context of false teachers, false ideologies in the media, false things on the news, uh, uh, the the gospel being attacked, uh, people wanting to give up, people not finishing well, opposition and persecution. All of this is happening in a world very similar to our day. And God keeps saving married couples. God keeps empowering guys like Vanessa Forrest to not be ashamed of the gospel and serve the church. God keeps raising up elected officials to, to, to meet, to know Jesus, and to live out Christ's kingdom in their sphere in which God has placed them to oversee. And God keeps saving radically non-Christians. Some, other than an elected official in the room, which I don't know, maybe we have one. I don't know yet. Uh, we have all of these here. Some of you were radically non, not a Christian, and then Jesus saved you. Some of you got saved and you're doing ministry as a married couple. 
You're serving the church well. Some of you are just very unashamed of the gospel, like Vanessa Forrest, and you're just going to preach it, but you're also going to come alongside those who do and encourage and equip them and bless them. Some of you are like this elected official, uh, and you, you, you long to be in a position of influence in the city, and we just pray for you, and we ask that you continue to do that and seek ways to extend the gospel in those spheres. This is happening in a culture that hates Jesus. This is happening in cities that are opposed to the gospel of Christ. This is happening when the false teachers have the news outlets, the false teachers have the media outlets, the false teachers are controlling the nation, the culture, everything. Jesus is still building his church. Why? Verse 22, 2 Timothy chapter 4. The power of grace. We need it. There's this need for grace. All this is happening in the middle of opposition because of the grace of God. Therefore, Paul's last words to Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be to you. What undergirds all of this, this entire book, and all these stories is this need for grace-empowered ministry. We need grace. We need the power and presence of God. He says, the Lord be with your spirit means May God's presence be with you. We need grace and we need power. Some of you are like, yes and amen. Now I got some good news. It's already been given to you. It's already been given. Jesus in the Great Commission said what? In verse 20, I will be with you always. I'll be with you always. About to enter Christmas season where we're gonna, we're gonna talk, we're gonna see he's, he's Emmanuel, which is God with us. Jesus not only came to be with us and, and to, to, to live among man, to die in our place for our sins, but after he resurrected from the dead, gave us his spirit through faith. We're told in Ephesians 2 that, that grace is God's unmerited favor, that it was, it was grace, it was for by grace we have been saved through faith. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And it's a gift of God, it's through Christ alone. It is. It's a gift of God. Why? So that no one can boast. It's a gift given to you. And it, and, and it was not just given to you for yourself, but in verse 10 of chapter 2, it says that we were, we were prepared for good works. We're to go, we're to, the, the gospel is to save us, transform us, and lead us back out on the mission field. That's why. That's what it's supposed to do. That's what it, and therefore, we need the mercy and grace and power of Jesus, not to just save us from our sins, but to keep us going on mission. Because of the finished work of Christ, because Jesus is not in a tomb, but he is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, because of this, we have access to both. The presence of God, he will never leave you nor forsake you, and the grace of God, which will be with you always until the day of Christ's return. Therefore, we in response should cling to that grace, cling to the word. We should confess our sins when, we, when we're aware of them. Why? Because the mercy and grace of Jesus overflows to us. He knows our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins, and has already dealt with them. Therefore, when we become aware of them, we willfully repent, not in shame or guilt, because we've been, our guilt and shame have been dealt with. So we willfully freely say it again and again and again I'm wrong I glory in the fact that I'm wrong because I glory in the fact that he is right and that he has saved me 
Do you glory in that? Do you get excited about that? When you're aware of your sin, do you see it as an invitation to run to Jesus, to cast your cares on Jesus? Or do you run and hide in shame and believe the counterfeit, that you're okay the way you are? If you can just hide and run from your problems, then somehow it'll get better over time. No, don't do that. Repent willfully, freely, frequently, joyfully, often. Run to Jesus. That's where freedom is. Are you aware of your sin? Run to Jesus. Are you aware of your, your, uh, your need for a Savior? Run to Jesus. Are you aware of how hard life is? Run to Jesus. Are you aware of how hard ministry is? Run to Jesus. Are you aware of how scared you are to be unashamed of the gospel? Run to Jesus. Are you aware of where you're at right now? Wherever you're out, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. That's the response. There's no other response. You can can respond in rebellion, but you forsake life. You forsake peace. You forsake hope. You forsake transformation. You forsake mercy, grace, and power. May the Lord be with you. And may God's grace be upon you. Not just generically, but to empower you to the ministry that God has called you to. So what is it? What is the Spirit speaking to you? How can you join in the mission like Priscilla and Aquila? How can you be unashamed like Anesiphorus? How can you pray or participate in public policy with elected officials so that the gospel of Jesus move forward with power? Who are the non-Christians in your life the Gentiles that are yet to be converted, that the Lord Jesus has called them by name and wants to save them, but he wants to use you to open their eyes through the message of the gospel, through your mouth, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that they may be saved. How will you respond? If Jesus has spoken to you today, do not delay, do not wait, but resolve by the power of the Spirit to obey. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we in this great book, May we continue in its themes. May we continue in the legacy that's been passed down from generation to generation that began with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we're now grafted in the same faith. We praise you for that. May we continue that legacy. And then may we continue to fulfill the mission that you gave Jesus upon your resurrection, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you to go make disciples. May we be first disciples of you, Jesus, staying near to you. Then may we be the type of men and women who who our ministry, if we're married, uh, is, is abounding in their home, then overflows to our kids, then overflows to our other relationships. If we're not married yet, may we see that our, our, our life is still dependent on you and we must cultivate our relationship with you and we must still make disciples whatever context you've given us. So Lord, would you empower us to do ministry um, in ways like Priscilla and Aquila to be unashamed of the gospel like Onesiphorus? Would we pray for elected officials who don't know you, Jesus, that they would come to know you in both political parties and then start building their policies and, uh, based off of your word, will, and ways. And then lastly, Lord, there's non-Christians in our life, radical non-Christians, people that we even think that there's no way they, can be get, they could come become Christians. Lord, you're in the business of doing that. May we see the fruit of that really soon. Would you cause those that we know and love who are far from you to place their faith in you, and may we see citywide transformation, not through anything other than the power of the gospel that we are so unashamed of. We love it. We praise you, Jesus, for it. Amen.